The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Want to get a milkshake? I haven't been around newbies in a while. They're a little intense. Let's get a milkshake. Yeah, they make a milkshake here that's made out of actual stardust. It's pretty good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Getting milkshakes with Patty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but can I ask you a, a couple of questions first? Uh, you were a follower of Plotinus who claimed that contemplation of our ultimate reality. Wait, 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 wait. Are you, what's it called, um, a think book man? No, um, a think read book man. A philosopher, yes. Sorry, it's been so long, my brain is foggy. Listen carefully before I forget how to say this. You gotta help us, we are so screwed. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, May 6th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yes, we are so screwed. And no matter how bad you may think things are today with regard to COVID and lockdowns, the reality is that things are infinitely worse than the average person can absorb, particularly if they've been asleep at the philosophical and political wheel. It's going to take a lot of suffering to wake people up, argue many, particularly those with a religious background. And there is a truth to this observation, but it is not to be confused with the idea that suffering is necessary or desirable in order to wake up, or to improve things, or for healing to take place, as we so often hear. In fact, what is necessary in this context is an appreciation of philosophy, and of how philosophy, whether one is conscious of it or not, determines our political and social reality and the world in which we live. Want to end the lockdowns? Then discover philosophy. We'll explore that premise and more right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Our politicians and corporate media insist that COVID vaccines, which are not vaccines, will save us from further lockdowns and from catching a viral cold or flu. Neither of those things is true or possible, of course, even according to those making such outrageous and irrational claims, nor will suffering lead to anything positive. The scarier possibility is that suffering will be raised to a moral ideal that will only lead to more suffering, especially if it's justified by altruism and virtue signaling, and we're seeing a lot of that happening today. Suffering may be what wakes some people up, but beware that when awakened, that those same people don't prove to be worse than when they were asleep, (laughs) right? What suffering or discomfort do achieve, however, when experienced in sufficient doses, is to move people from inaction into action. But action alone is no answer to any dilemma. It has to be the right action. And the only way to determine the right action is to base that action on the right philosophy. 
What can, quote-unquote, save us and what is necessary is philosophy, a philosophy that corresponds to reality and to reason, not just any wacko theory that's being touted as a philosophy, like Marxism and a whole host of collectivist variants that in the end <laughs> never vary from one another. Now last week we talked about the necessity of learning from history. Those who fail to learn from history are bound to repeat it. But you know something? Unfortunately, I think I've had a recent epiphany about that bromide that leads me to believe that this may indeed be a deeply flawed and mistaken assumption. And I'll explain why by way of a question. What if that history was a good history? Not a totalitarian one, not one of tyranny. Like most of our recent history of freedom and capitalism now being abandoned in the name of tyranny. Wouldn't we want to repeat it? And by remaining ignorant of that positive history, how can we possibly be, quote, bound to repeat it, end quote, by some magical act of historical determinism? <laughs> I only wish. For example, the history of Western culture and of the Enlightenment is history too, isn't it? And since that's the history and culture currently being cast aside, it seems to me that we failed to learn the historical lessons of freedom every bit as much as we failed to learn the lessons of tyranny. So to suggest that because we failed to learn from history, we are bound to repeat it seems to me to be a false premise. How come that never works on the side of freedom? Ignorance never determines the good because it cannot. Ignorance always leads toward tyranny because tyranny is our default position that requires no knowledge or principles and because freedom requires understanding and effort and eternal vigilance against tyranny. As we've emphasized many times before on this show, freedom and tyranny are conditions that are the result of a given philosophy. And in terms of the political polarities of left and right, the left represents tyranny, while the right represents freedom. There is no middle ground between the two. And if that notion's a mystery to you, I suggest you listen to our broadcast entitled The Broken Political Compass, which you can find on our website. Two of the best-known variants of tyranny are the collectivist ideologies of communism and fascism, which differ only in one respect. Communism represents state ownership and control, whereas fascism dispenses with the necessity of ownership and only emphasizes control. Control of private property, private enterprise, private choice, and all matters of private nature, like freedom of speech, for example. All forms of tyranny are carried out through the initiation of the use of force against otherwise peaceful citizens. In contrast, the operative principle of a free society is individual consent, which is not to be confused with consensus, a collective term that can rightly be applied only to a very narrow area of social interaction. More and more, People are saying that nothing makes any sense, and that is not by accident or omission or some kind of inevitable determinism. Right now, we are living in a political era of complete irrationality, and to help explain why this is so, we must, of course, look towards philosophy, which is exactly what Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson did on her April 25th show. Jason D. Hill is a professor of philosophy at DePaul University and the author of four books, uh, these include uh, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People, 
becoming a cosmopolitan, what it means to be a human being in the new millennium. I hope someone can help to keep us there. Civil disobedience and the politics of identity. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor uh, Jason Hill. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So uh, this is quite a bit of tyranny that we're experiencing up here. Can you help to shed some light? Uh, civil disobedience is something that you've written about, you understand. Um, I think that there's uh, a tremendous rise in civil disobedience here in Canada and in North America. So what do you suggest to people as we see an onslaught and, and an attack against our civil liberties? Well, Laura, I, I think first people have to, we have to diagnose the problem or else we'll just be like fighting lies in a vacuum. We'll be like fighting, we'll be piecemeal warriors instead of being comprehensive wholesale soldiers. People first have to understand what really is going on in our culture and what is going on is systemic nihilism, the destruction of all values, a wholesale war against Western civilization, the criminalization of, of thought, of reason, of logic. We are seeing a wholesale assault against Christianity, which I call Christophobia. Um, we are seeing where students or people who hold divergent viewpoints from very far left um, socialist communist views that are inundating our universities, which have become indoctrination centers, um, are punished. People have to first realize what they're fighting. They're fighting a, a war against these, these activists, these, these people who engage in decolonizing courses and cancel culture. They're systemic nihilists. They're destroyers of, of values because they're values and they're out to destroy the West. And the West includes Canada, it includes Europe, it includes North America. Um, when we first realize what we're fighting, then we know, the, when we know the nature of the beast, then we can pick the method of the battle. And I think in the division of labor, we can fight on multiple levels as an intellectual activist, um, not in the, the classroom, but certainly as a writer. I try to intellectually empower people. First, they must not ever capitulate to the adversary. That is never apologize for the unprecedented greatness of Western civilization, because actually it is the very same tools, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of assembly, which they're using, ironically, to to criticize and to destroy Western civilization. And people need to have this courage of their convictions. Laurel, and what I have found is that there are a lot of very closeted conservative or just dissenters who are scared of social ostracism. They are very afraid of being alienated from their communities. So they do not agree with the kind of malarkey and nonsense that is going on in our culture to shut down free speech, to rob their civil liberties, rob people of their right to worship, resist to, to let your voice be heard, to recognize that the state, be it Canada or North America, did not give you those rights. God gave you those rights. Those are inalienable rights. And the state is your servant who stands there to protect those rights. Um, that's the first thing I would I would I would say. Wow, that that is uh, very clarifying. Actually, you know, once we understand that, uh, have you been shocked at the events that 2020, that the pandemic, that the way it has been used 
to literally assault our freedoms. Um, you, as somebody who's been studying these things for many years, has this taken you by surprise? Um, as the year has worn on and we've seen more and more, um, you know, all, all kinds of things like lockdowns, um, certain states being locked down, other states refusing to lock down, taking the masks off down there in Texas and other great places. Uh, what, what do you think of, of what you're watching right now, you know, firsthand? Well, I'm not, to answer your question, I'm not surprised. I mean, from as I'm 55, I came to America. I'm a new, an American citizen now, thank God. I came to America at the age of 20 and from Jamaica. And I, as early as a, a young, precocious undergraduate, I was seeing the demise of Western civilization. I was seeing in the classroom. It all starts among the intellectuals, of course, who are the, the biggest breach in, in, in our country is not between the rich or the poor, between blacks or whites. It's between the intellectuals and the people where the intellectuals were dismantling or laying the foundation for the dismantling of civilization, laying the foundation for radical apostasy and, and Christophobia. Um, so I saw the encroachments against individual liberties taking place as far back as 35 years ago when you had people like Jesse Jackson, um, rights leader, who would lead with other people saying, whole, whole Western civilization has got to go. Um, so I think what we're seeing is just that the chickens have come home to roost, that these activists and the politicians and the personnel who are their ventriloquists, really, um, are simply um, the practitioners of their, their teacher. If you yield one inch and give away or, or yield on fundamental principles. It's just a matter of time. Here's an analogy, Laura Lynn. When a criminal comes into your house and um, and you don't make a compromise with a, you have to compromise, you, you, you don't make a compromise. When you give him one bit of your silverware, uh, you haven't made a concession really, because a concession really is uh, an adjustment between two competing claims where both parties benefit. What you've done is given the criminal the right over your entire property. And the analogy I'm making is that once you concede on basic fundamental principles with the state, you've given them permission to encroach on all your other liberties and all your other rights. And people need to realize that. They're very atavistic. They're backward-looking people instead of forward-looking people. I mean, those on the far left. Because forward-looking requires accountability. It means accepting each other as individuals. And I'm a rugged individualist. And um, the activists really have taken over uh, to, 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 to answer something, to, to go back to my previous point about how did we get here? I think part of how we got here was in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, arose these disciplines like black studies and women's studies and gay studies and post-colonial studies and all kinds of fake disciplines that were just activist movements that superseded the role of scholarship and real learning. And what they did was they criminalized thought. They used feelings and whims and desires as criteria for adjudicating among truth claims. If you dare to give a rational, well-thought-out thought that is a conviction, and it offends them, then you are a racist. We've gotten to a very, very low point in our civilization. 
In fact, civilization ceases to exist once thinking is criminalized and freedom of speech is prohibited. As Ayn Rand defined it, and I quote, Civilization is the progress toward a society of privacy. The savage's whole existence is public, ruled by the laws of his tribe. Civilization is the process of setting man free from men, end quote. Wow, what a concise definition. And on the subject of civil disobedience, Rand had this to say, and boy, does it ever take on an extra significance in the light of today's examples. And I quote, Civil disobedience may be justifiable in some cases when and if an individual disobeys a law in order to bring an issue to court as a test case. Such an action involves respect for legality and a protest directed only at a particular law which the individual seeks an opportunity to prove to be unjust. The same is true of a group of individuals when and if the risks involved are their own. But there is no justification in a civilized society for the kind of mass civil disobedience that involves the violation of the rights of others, regardless of whether the demonstrator's goal is good or evil. The end does not justify the means. No one's rights can be secured by the violation of the rights of others. Mass disobedience is an assault on the concept of rights. It is a mob's defiance of legality as such. The forcible occupation of another man's property or the obstruction of a public thoroughfare is so blatant a violation of rights that any attempt to justify it becomes an abrogation of morality. An individual has no right to do a sit-in in the home or office of the person he disagrees with, and he does not acquire such a right by joining a gang. Rights are not a matter of numbers, and there can be no such thing in law or in morality as actions forbidden to an individual but permitted to a mob. The only power of a mob as against an individual is greater muscular strength, plain, brute, physical force. The attempt to solve social problems by means of physical force is what a civilized society is established to prevent. The advocates of mass civil disobedience admit that their purpose is intimidation. A society that tolerates intimidation as a means of settling disputes, the physical intimidation of some men or groups by others, loses its moral right to exist as a social system, and its collapse does not take long to follow. Politically, mass civil disobedience is appropriate only as a prelude to civil war, as the declaration of a total break with a country's political institutions, end quote. Well, let's hope we're not quite at that point yet, but more and more we're hearing reports that civil war is indeed becoming a possible reality, especially if you've been listening to the news coming out of France. But now apply what we just heard from Ayn Rand to the differences between the peaceful freedom marches being conducted by those opposed to the immoral lockdowns with the violent protests of groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, both completely fascist, who have no moral right to exist in any society. And you know, this is a big problem today. Is most people are totally unaware of philosophy, its role, or how it works, or why it is so necessary. So, once again, in the interest of empowering us to actually take effective action against our oppressors, allow me to offer the quickest overview of philosophy you'll ever find anywhere. This is the quickest lesson you'll ever get. Here's how simple it is. 
Essentially, there are five branches of philosophy. One, metaphysics. Two, epistemology. Three, ethics, or morality if you prefer. Four, politics. And five, aesthetics. Each branch deals with a specific aspect of philosophy. The first one, metaphysics, concerns the nature of reality itself, the physical universe, the nature of energy, and the so-called laws of nature, which are not man-made laws, but eternal and inviolable principles upon which all action in the universe is determined. Second, epistemology concerns the nature of valid knowledge. That's what this show is primarily about. Our show is primarily about epistemology. How to know, with the greatest degree of certainty possible, that what we know is actually valid. This field of philosophy is all about, you know, definitions, concepts, and above all, the process of reason, as opposed to the process of feelings, whims, and desires, as we heard mentioned in the previous conversation. Third, ethics, or morality, if you prefer, concerns human decisions and the consequences thereof. This is entirely an individualist proposition and places the self as the beneficiary of moral action. It does not place others as the beneficiary of moral action. This is one of the biggest mistakes we make in society because that field concerns the fourth level of philosophy, politics. Politics concerns society at large, and in a free society, the operative principle is consent, whereas in an unfree society, the operative principle is the use of force. And finally, aesthetics concerns the field of art, of theater, literature, movies, books, TV shows, and any form of art that can express the values or non-values of the artist. Each successive branch of philosophy is dependent on the previous branch, and there's no escaping that, as we'll learn later on in the show today. Which brings us back to the point of all of this, the creation of a free society comprised of free individuals, each free within the limits of their own abilities to determine their own destiny without the forcible interference of other individuals, which means, again, in the simplest terms possible. In metaphysics, it's reality. In epistemology, it's reason. In morality, it's the self. In politics, it is consent. In aesthetics, it is the expression of values. Pretty simple, right? <laughs> if only it were. When a society is predominantly committed to reality, reason, self, and consent, the political expression of those values comes right out of that. It's something with which people are far more familiar. Life, liberty, and property. The protection of the rights to life, liberty, and property. The holy trinity of political values that lead to the ultimate condition we know as freedom. I recall Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever recently expressing to me his joy over the fact that all of the groups protesting the lockdowns are chanting freedom, 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 and not just liberty, which is a top-down form of freedom and only part of the trinity of freedom which cannot exist without the corresponding rights to life and property. And just in case I forgot to mention it, always bear in mind that all rights pertain to freedom of action, not to things or to materialistic benefits that have to be provided by others. That is not freedom. So, now we're getting at the point where the rubber hits the road. Our current state of politics and the terrifying threat of COVID tyranny that our politicians clearly want to make our reality. 
Here are Rajay and Rocco in a discussion that was posted online on April 25th. Rocco Galati, of course, as many may already be aware, is the Canadian constitutional lawyer who has been taking legal action against the lockdowns on a number of legal fronts. Hey guys, how's it going? Rajay and Rocco here once again. There was an email that was leaked back in October. Um, I believe it was October 10th, right? 2020, yeah. Yeah, 2020. And this email uh, came out as a leaked email. Very briefly, it was purportedly from a whistleblower who was uh, privy to uh, a governmental meeting, including the Prime Minister's office, with respect to future COVID measures. Mm -hmm. And it was leaked. Uh, many people said, is this fake news? Is it fake news? Ezra Levant did a whole piece saying, this is very sad and sorry, but it's fake news. Now, is he eating his crow or what? So, we're going to go through the, the, what that leaked email said at the time. And my feeling was this. Because it went viral within 24 hours, which only the government could really affect that kind of viral effect, it was a way of the government to put it out in a way that could be uh, denied as fake news, but to see what the reaction of us Canadians would be to it as a possible future agenda for the next year. Well, as Canadians, we're a bunch of chihuahuas and sheep, so we said nothing. Now, it's been almost uh, eight months since that memo. Let's reread what the memo said. Okay, let's go for it. Let's, uh, let's so, start. You want to start? All right, well, in a nutshell, it says, quote, the roadmap and aim was set out by the PMO and is as follows. Phase in secondary lockdown restrictions on a rolling basis, starting with major metropolitan areas first and expanding outward, expected by November 2020. Well, that actually happened November 23rd, 2020. Yeah. Next, Next. Rush. Rush the acquisition um, of the isolation facilities across every province and territory, expected by December 2020. That happened too. Quarantine you know, hotels. Quarantine hotels. And we saw those facilities okay. that were coming up as well. Next, daily new cases of COVID-19 will surge beyond capacity of testing, including increases in COVID-related deaths following the same growth curves expected by the end of November 2020. Well, that happened too. We've spent over $2 billion in testing in Ontario alone. Complete and total secondary lockdown, much stricter than the first and second rolling phases restrictions, expected by end of December 2020, early January 2021. That, that happened as well. Yeah, uh, Quebec was in curfew and um, the, all the businesses, essentials, non-essentials. Yeah, we saw it's a lockstep of uh, lockdowns being ratcheted up. The next item reform and expansion of the unemployment program to be transitioned into the universal basic income program expected by first quarter 2021. Well, that happened. If you recall, they expanded the, the program. It, it was much easier to qualify for employment insurance. Part-timers got it, and it was very much expanded, CERB and all of that. And by the way, the universal income program is in second reading. It got put under the radar through a quote, private member's bill. It's not a private member's bill. It's an elected liberal MP, and that's now in second reading. What the bill proposes to do is put in a universal income and scrap, eliminate the Canada Pension Plan Program, which is a contributory program, which for the last five months 
through its board of directors, has been shipped to China. So that's on the rails and moving along very well, thank you. Projected COVID-19 mutation and or co-infection with secondary virus leading to a third wave, much higher mortality rate uh, and higher rate of infection expected by February 2021. Well, what happened in February 2021? The famous English predicted variants. variants. Now we're into variants. Well, I got news for you. Every single novel flu virus usually will engender over 4,000 variants. So that was scripted and that happened. The next one, daily new cases of COVID-21 hospitalizations and COVID-19 and COVID-21 related deaths will exceed medical care facility capacity expected first and second quarter of 2021. Not that I believe any of the bullshit, but that's what you're living through right now. Enhanced lockdown restrictions, referred to as third lockdown, will be implemented. Full travel restrictions will be imposed, uh, including inter-province and inter-city, expected Q2 2021. Well, that just happened here in Ontario, yeah. April 17th. Yeah. You can't move here. You can't. They, they established non-existing juridical borders. It was just announced in British Columbia today. By Friday, an order's coming in that you, ha you can't travel outside of your medical district. What kind of, what kind of metric ton of horseshit is that? What does that mean, your medical district? Now the virus knows where you live in terms of your medical district mm -hmm. and what monkey is designated the chief medical officer in your medical district? I mean, this is how much they would, they love to, as I said before, urinate and defecate in your face and the constitution. The, the measures they impose are not even logical within their own pretzel, insane, made-up BS. Transitioning of individuals into a universal basic income program expected mid-Q2 2021. As I said, that's happened. The legislation's already been introduced. That what the bill says is that the Minister of Finance has no more than two years to table concrete plans on how the new system will work. And then after that, no more than two years They'll implement it. But that's a goalpost. They can implement it in uh, four months instead of four years. So once this legislation passes, they have this statutory vehicle to effect. Uh, projected supply chain breakdowns, inventory shortages, large economic instability expected uh, late uh, Q2 2021. Well, farmers. Well, that's going to happen here. Uh, just remember that for the rest of the developing world, that's been happening since the early days of the COVID. Yep. So that's coming here. Then the next one is deployment of military personnel into major metropolitan areas as well as major roadways to establish travel checkpoints, restrict travel and movement, provide logistical support to the area expected by the third quarter of 2021. Well, you know, given the vicious reaction to Doug Ford's announcement of random patrols and checkpoints, which I still am not decided whether the uniformity of the police chiefs saying we will not enforce that was sincere or part of the plan. Here's the plan. If the police won't enforce these random stops and checks, well, that gives the feds the excuse, and they've already talked about it a few days ago, of bringing in the Emergencies Act nationally, and that's when you get your soldiers on the street. So it's more than likely that this may be implemented. Uh, I, I'm finding it a bit suspicious yeah, that yeah. every police force in Ontario, every police chief, 
instantly said, we will not apply the law. No, I think Doug knew this because it was likely pre-planned with the police chiefs with Doug. Okay? Why? Why? What are the probabilities that 40 police chiefs across the province unanimously overnight come up with the same answer? You think that's plausible? It didn't happen right away, though. It's only been four days. Well, 39 39 forces said, no, we're not doing this. And then the other ones... When have you ever seen that? The police saying we're not enforcing the law. I mean, these are unprecedented times. Oh, please. You guys are all dreaming in color, okay? I'm uh, I'm not a pessimist. I'm just an optimist with too much frigging experience. These things don't happen randomly. Nothing is. No, no, no. You cannot get 40 people to unanimously, uh, without pre-deliberation, come down to the same decision. It just does not happen. Okay, so... So you're saying they wanted the police to turn around and say, we're not doing it just so they can get the military right. in. So, the, yeah. so Trudeau can bring in martial law. Right. Otherwise, he cannot, under the Emergencies Act, bring in martial law unless the province cannot handle the situation. Doug Ford can now say, my police chiefs don't want to apply the law, so I can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Well, the likelihood is that they, they decided not to handle it. Mm-hmm. And what about the playgrounds? Why do you why do you think he reversed then his his stance on the playgrounds? Did he really? I walk by High Park every day, and every entrance to the biggest park in Toronto is blocked. Only pedestrians can go in, but they have a big sign saying, "You have no access to the cherry blossoms. We will bring you the cherry blossoms through your internet." So it does not say that. It does say that. <laughs> I'll take a picture of it for your twenty. What is that? That is fascist, forthright goose-stepping. You can't go to the cherry blossoms? We're going to bring it to you by the internet? We'll send it to you by virtual email? Listen, and what about this? People who are hard of walking, who, who usually drive into High Park, park the car close to where they want to sit, can't do it. They don't care about people with disabilities. Why would you block off a the biggest park in the city of Toronto. So has he backed off? No. Dear Canada, this was Jacksonville, Florida last night. you peeked outside of your igloos and admitted you've been bamboozled because your country is being run by a man following in his famous father's footsteps. I'm just f***ing with you. It's a conspiracy theory that Trudeau is Fidel Castro's son. And there's absolutely no evidence that he's a communist at heart. There's a level of of, uh, admiration I actually have for China Um, because their basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. While the rest of the world gets on with their lives, people here are still saying things like this. If they followed the rules, numbers would be low and there wouldn't be a lockdown. Pretty simple. What happened to the people of this country? I mean, we are truly the laughing stock of the world. We should change our national flag from the maple leaf to an image of the US giving us an atomic wedgie. You people are 
softer than Premier Doug Ford's underbelly. And speaking of the unterrible Premier, Ontarians are the worst of the bunch. They're more removed from reality than the dude that thinks the stripper likes them. Literally, they're the dude who thinks the government loves them. I mean, we just witnessed some of the best COVID political theater to date, and the majority of the country thinks we just had a huge win. For those of you who don't know, our government threatened us with the implementation of a police state, and then after some imaginary backlash from the citizens, took it back and instead implemented paid sick leave. And the hashtag paid sick leave saves lives has taken off on all the socials. Paid sick leave saves lives? From what? Responsibility? Yeah, because that's what we need. More incentives for people to sit on their ass at home. This is an initiative that just so happens to be pushed by the same influencer shills who were supporting lockdowns and the decimation of small businesses all along. And of course, they'll pay people to go out and get tested, which will inevitably increase the case counts and keep this cycle going on indefinitely. As long as you keep handing out free money, these dumb fucks will be satisfied. So tell me, Canada, what's your next move? And I'm genuinely asking because Health Canada just released their stipulations for lifting the lockdown. They've stated that in order to lift the restrictions, 75% of adult Canadians will need to receive one dose of the vaccine and 20% will need to receive their second dose. So what's your plan if we don't reach that number? What's gonna happen if 75% of the Canadian population decides that they're not gonna do exactly what you want them to do? You gonna throw a temper tantrum? You gonna repeat the words, you're the reason we can't go back to normal. Mm, like you've been doing all year? Or are you gonna put on your big boy pants, take your life back, and accept the fact that life has inherent risks and that your health is your responsibility? Genuinely curious. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And that was What's-Her-Face pretty much summarizing in her own brilliant way what we just heard Rocco Galati describe. <laughs> the unterrible premiere, I love it. I promised earlier that we would demonstrate how each successive branch of philosophy is dependent on the previous, and to address that issue, I will refer to a March 29th commentary by Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, Government Decision-Making, Why Political Philosophy is the Last Consideration. And I quote, There is a common fallacy, shared by libertarians and many objectivists alike, that only the political branch of philosophy has any relevance to governmental decision-making. As examples to the contrary, consider the various decisions that governments make every day about ethical, epistemological, and metaphysical questions. A. That the pursuit of your own happiness is your highest purpose is a claim in ethics, not in politics. That achieving that happiness requires you to obtain objectively determined values by rational means is a topic in ethics, not in politics. Why does government need to guide its decisions by such ethical concerns? Because it has to know what it is governing and say what it is defending. If according to government, man's nature is such that his highest purpose is to sacrifice himself for the greater good, then government cannot justify making laws against someone taking your life, liberty, or property without your consent. If, according to government, man's nature is such that his highest purpose is to pursue his own happiness, then government cannot justify making laws pursuant to which it takes your life, liberty, or property without your consent. The moral issue of ultimate purpose 
is not a political non-issue. Every bloody day, government says or implies that our highest moral purpose is to stay locked down so that someone else's granny doesn't die. Every bloody day, government says or implies that your highest moral purpose is to sacrifice for the greater good. It says or implies such things because it has decided such things to be the case. Pursuant to decisions about moral questions, it then makes political decisions to pass and enforce laws, to lock us down, stick us with technology, and group us into those free to pass and not free to pass. The government's political decision is preceded by its moral decision. B. That values are things that contribute in the long term to your own survival and happiness is a claim in ethics, not in politics. When government decides that we've got to deal with today's problems today and worry about tomorrow's problems tomorrow, it is deciding that your long-term survival and happiness is irrelevant. That's a moral decision made by a government. It is not a political decision. C. That virtues are actions that facilitate your obtaining of objective values is a claim in ethics, not in politics. Before a government makes the political decision to impose a tax on the rich to fund a universal basic income, it first decides that it is virtuous for the government to obtain values not by way of rational effort, but by way of force. That's a moral issue, not a political one. D. When a government decides to impose lockdowns, mandatory vaccinations, or vaccine passports, because 60% of physicians polled say that lockdowns, vaccines, and passports save lives, the political decision to impose these measures is preceded by a decision about what to treat as a means of obtaining knowledge, i.e. the decision that a show of hands is a means of obtaining knowledge. It makes an epistemological decision and, only thereafter, makes a political decision. E. When government decides to pass a law against misgendering because one's gender is determined by how one identifies or invests money in the economy because there is reportedly little confidence in the economy, it is acting upon its metaphysical decision that consciousness has primacy over existence. First, it decides mind over matter, metaphysically, then it decides matter over mind, politically. In short, a government is a decision maker, and every political decision is preceded by a host of metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical decisions. Yet the belief that only the political branch of philosophy is relevant to government decision making, that everyone who quote-unquote loves freedom can favor all of the same government decisions even if they've made different metaphysical, epistemological, or ethical decisions, is false. There is not a single political position that anyone can advocate without defending the metaphysical, epistemological, and ethical decisions upon which it is founded. It doesn't matter why, as long as we or most of us agree, is the same as saying that consciousness has primacy over existence. When that's your position, freedom is no more defensible than any other popular stance like tyranny. Without a commitment to a foundation, a structural form, and materials of sufficient strength, a roof has no chance of remaining overhead. Political freedom doesn't stand a chance without an unhidden commitment to reality, reason, and self. End quote. Wow, Ayn Rand couldn't have said it better herself, Paul. Now you may recall that in my opening comments today, I said, no matter how bad you may think things are today with regard to COVID and lockdowns, the reality is things are infinitely worse than the average person can absorb. As if to emphasize my point, 
This past Tuesday, I received the following telephone message on my phone. This is just a test call. Time to stay home. Stay safe and stay home. And then, this one. This is a high-priority message from Alert London Notification System. This is a test message of the Alert London Notification System. In the event of an actual emergency, this notification message may contain public safety instructions, such as shelter in place, evacuation, or other vital public safety information. For more information, visit www.london.ca slash emergency. End of messages. That was the first time I got that second message, but the previous message has been left several times throughout the past year. Now, I happen to have two phone accounts, Rogers Wireless and a Bell Landline. I did a little checking, and it appears that only Bell Canada subscribers got the test messages, and those on Rogers have not as yet received any, at least as of this Tuesday past. But, to make matters worse, no sooner had I heard Rocco Galati report on the scripted deployment of military personnel than this announcement from Canada's COVID Communist Prime Minister was made. To beat back the third wave and protect Ontarians, we're deploying federal health care workers to the province. This mobilization includes three medical assistance teams and nine critical care nurses from the Canadian Armed Forces. Yesterday, the forces carried out their assessment of the needs on the ground in Ontario to finalize the details of this operation. We're working with our provincial partners on next steps and Armed Forces members will be mobilized in the coming days. Let's be clear, sending men and women in uniform to help in Ontario is a serious step. We're doing this because the situation requires it. Today, the first deployment of nurses and doctors from Newfoundland and Labrador will also be arriving in Ontario for the GTA. They'll land this afternoon at Pearson aboard a Canadian Armed Forces airplane. Newfoundland and Labrador is already organizing a second team of healthcare workers who will rotate in to help. Our government is covering the costs of deploying these teams and we're ready to do the same for any other province or territory that can also step in with support. Unfortunately, Ontario is far from the only place dealing with a spike in cases. Across Nova Scotia and especially in the Halifax region, numbers have risen quickly and the province requested help. So we're too, there too, we're sending support. We're deploying 60 Canadian Armed Forces members to testing centres in Nova Scotia. This will help stop the spread of the virus. For Albertans, too, we're standing ready. Over the weekend, the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo, which includes Fort McMurray, declared a state of emergency. Yesterday, Minister Haidu talked to Mayor Scott about the, the outbreak in the region and the situation on the ground. Our government has reached out to Alberta on what support they may need to keep people safe and get the situation back under control. The bottom line is this. Across the country, we're working with provinces and territories to keep you, uh, keep you safe. Across the country, we will have your back. And together, we will get through this.
I know everyone's like, well, what can we do? <laughs> what should we do? Well, if you're a store owner, open up. And if you're a customer, go shop at your local stores. There's no way that, in my personal view, as the executive director of the Constitutional Rights Center, that when a government blatantly ignores the law, blatantly ignores science, blatantly ignores rationality, blatantly ignores logic, and puts in fascistic, tyrannical orders that make no sense, that we, there's no way that in that context we do not have the constitutional right to civilly disobey those laws. They're repugnant, they're immoral, they're illegal, and at that point, after a year, you say, I have a constitutional right to tell you to go pound sand on a wet peach. See, you call it, what did you call it? Civil uh, disobedience? Right. I, I like to call it collective non-compliance. If we all say no, same thing. We're yeah. just like, we're not going to do it. As an anarchist, I don't like the word collective. Why? Why? Because if everybody does it individually, the collective just emerges organically. I don't have to organize to do this. Oh, Just we're everybody saying, we're saying, it. We're saying the same thing, but in different different ways, I think. No, not at all. A little bit. They're talking about collective. They purport to well, do everything in I the say, best interest of society. But when I say collective, I mean all of us. It doesn't have to be all of us. Just the ones that don't want to obey fascist goose-stepping laws. It doesn't have to be all of us. But if it's all of us, then this stuff just... It goes away really fast. If it's only 20% of us, it goes away fast. So forget that the collective. No, that's not do true. Do what you because, can do. Because there is probably 20% of people that are doing non-compliance, and they're still moving a, a, ahead with this crazy agenda. No, there isn't 20% of, of non-compliance. Are you dreaming? Where do you see 20% of, of non-compliance in Canada? Would, it would be 8 million people not complying. Okay, Alice, fine. That's too, so that's too much. Okay. It's less than that. It's marginal right now. Wait, so you're saying so you just need a small percentage of people. 10 to 20%, but that's a lot. We're not there yet. We're not there yet, and we got to get there. You know, most revolutions had less than 12 people starting it. So the Russian Revolution was started by Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky. Three guys. So what so are you saying? Open up your bloody restaurant so I can have dinner. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I very much like and agree with what we just heard Rocco Galati say, save for one tragic flaw. He referred to himself as an anarchist. That a lawyer could even call himself an anarchist is to me a contradiction in terms. Anarchy is what we have now. Fascism is not governance. Communism is not governance. And the irony is that both fascism and communism and other forms of collectivism are perfectly compatible with anarchy. They coexist with the greatest of ease. But given what I've heard Galati say over the past year or so, I would describe him as an individualist, not as an anarchist, and I wish he would stop using that word anarchist. We often hear libertarians and even conservatives shout the slogan, more freedom through less government. This is completely false. We don't have government now, which is why we also don't have freedom. Freedom Party believes that the purpose of government is to protect individual freedom of choice, not to restrict it. And I recall when Freedom Party first issued that statement, how every libertarian and anarchist who previously supported the party abandoned it, never to be heard from again. Purpose of government? 
completely alien to anyone who's truly an anarchist, and I know, I speak from experience. But certainly, Galati's 20% rule is very valid, and amazingly reflects the very principle that Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever made in anticipation of the coming June 2, 2022 Ontario election. And here's what he posted to Freedom Party's site, which you can see for yourself in total. The shocking truth about why opponents of lockdowns can win. Quote, If lockdowns, mask mandates, talk of vaccine passports, and the daily efforts of the establishment parties and media to cancel, fine, or imprison those who speak out against such abuse of power has you feeling down, dispirited, or hopeless, this message is for you. This is not an empty, pro-freedom, rah-rah-rah, we-can-do-it rant. We've all read those and found them to give no real reasons to think the next election will be any different from the past. No, what I here offer you is mathematics. Mathematics that will crush the arguments of those who attempt to tell you that you're throwing your vote away unless you vote PC, Liberal, or NDP. Mathematics will show you how easy it is to actually beat the PCs, Liberals, and NDP. Mm. But didn't you want to tell us how we're all screwed? Ah, damn it! This is the exact problem! On paper, this is paradise. All your desires and needs are met. I'm telling you, I used to be cool, man. I studied so much things. Art and music and the, um, the one with the number piles, where I'd be like two and you'd be like six. Math? Yes. Now we're just gonna become zombies? Why haven't you told anyone about this? About what? Yeah, simple math. <laughs> Each election, you've been told that the public heavily supports the PCs or the Liberals. Polls are trotted out by TV, radio, and news media, almost all of which are owned by the same two or three huge publicly traded corporations, to convince you that the Liberals or Progressive Conservatives have the support of, say, 42% of those polled, and the other parties trailing at 32% or closing the gap at 39%. But it's all smoke and mirrors. The simple fact of the matter is that the winners of provincial elections have nowhere near that amount of support. Don't take my word for it. Let's look at the actual results of past elections. Freedom Party of Ontario was founded in 1984, so we'll use that as our starting point. The following table shows which party won each of the last 10 elections, how many seats they won, what percentage of ballots were cast, and what percentage of eligible voters voted for that party. But here are the relevant stats. And these stats represent the percentage of all eligible voters who voted for the winning party. 1985, 22.8%. 2011, 18.2%. 2014, 19.9%. And 2018, 23%. In all of the last 10 Ontario provincial elections, the party winning the greatest number of seats needed the votes of less than 30% of all eligible voters to win. They needed the votes of as few as 18.2% of eligible voters. In most of those cases, they formed a majority government. The most recent election was a little different. 
77% of Ontario's eligible voters did not vote for Doug Ford's progressive conservative candidates. With the support of fewer than one in four voters, Ford's PCs scooped 76 of Ontario's 124 seats. My point, of course, is that the media feeds you a false impression that winning parties have a lot of supporters. They don't. A party can turn the province into its totalitarian plaything with the support of less than 20% of eligible voters. Now consider this. It is obvious that the most important issue facing all Ontarians at present is the government's response to coronavirus. It is also obvious that Ontario's Liberal NDP and Green parties complain not that Ford's PC government is being too oppressive, but that it's being too lax when it comes to things like stay-at-home orders and mask mandates. No matter how tightly Ford's PCs choose to tighten the screws, the other parties want them tightened even more. And to be certain, voters who are in favor of such intrusions on your freedom will again vote PC, Liberal, or NDP or Green in the June 2022 election. However, it's becoming pretty clear that there's a significant minority of Ontario voters who will vote for a party that will restore their freedom and put an end to lockdown mask mandates, etc. Now ask yourself this. Is it possible that at least 19.9% of eligible voters will vote for a party that can be trusted to put an immediate end to lockdowns, mask mandates, and other abuses of government power? You and the many people you've seen opposing these abusive policies have the power to end all of this. You do not need the numbers you think you need. The election of 2022 does not have to be a replacement of one oppressive government with another one. In terms of which party to elect, the choice is clear. From the outset of the coronavirus issue, Freedom Party has consistently opposed draconian lockdowns, mandatory mask wearing, and other draconian measures. In my capacity as a leader of Freedom Party, I warned as early as March 22, 2020, that the forces of the left would use coronavirus as an excuse to violate the lives, liberties, and properties of Ontarians. I have consistently opposed the Ford government's responses to coronavirus with videos, articles, radio appearances, and in social media. Freedom Party President Robert Metz, likewise, has tirelessly brought to listeners of his weekly global radio broadcast, Just Right, the information that thoughtful people need to distinguish facts from false news. Moreover, unlike every other political party in Ontario, Freedom Party has a massive online archive of its audio, video, and written communications spanning 41 years. We do not hide anything we've said or done so you can see for yourself that Freedom Party has remained Ontario's advocate for a government that defends your life, liberty, and property and has consistently opposed attacks on your freedom and your pursuit of happiness. Have a look at Freedom Party's archive entries over the last 13 months and you'll have the evidence you need to feel confident that a Freedom Party government will immediately put an end to lockdowns, mandatory masking, mandatory vaccination, and vaccination passports. End quote. The scary part is that a year from now we may all be required to carry COVID vaccination passports but still not be required to have voter ID and verification. It is systemic nihilism in overdrive. But when it comes to the percentages, here's hoping that 100% of you will join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Well, there's no doubt about it.
The writing's on the wall. Well, in any event, we'll have to think of something to make the public think kindly towards administration because of the Europass. Mm, quite. Europass? Europass. But briefly, Minister, Brussels is about to decree that there should be a new European identity card to be carried by all citizens of the EEC. And quite obviously, the Prime Minister wants you to introduce the legislation. Me? And it would simplify our administration enormously in the long run, so it's a good idea, don't good you Good idea? Good idea? Good idea! Not a good idea? Political suicide? Trying to make British people carry compulsory identification papers? They'll say I'm introducing a police state again. Is this what we fought two world wars for, Humphreys? Well, you might get away with calling it Euro Club Express. Burn it by the shot. But how will the other EEC countries feel about having to carry identity papers? Won't they resist too? No, no, the Germans will love it. The French will ignore it. The Italians and the Irish will be too chaotic to enforce it. <laughs> it's only the British who will resent it.